0: Diane Coyle is that rare commodity, an economist who can write. She has written three books, is a visiting professor at the University of Manchester, and runs an economics consulting firm, Enlightenment Economics. Her latest book is The Soulful Science, What Economists Really Do and Why It Matters. Diane, welcome to EconTalk. It's great to be here talking to you. The Soulful Science is a wonderfully accessible and thorough overview of the last 30 or so years of economic research. The book opens with a discussion of topics that we've spent a lot of time here talking about uh, growth and poverty, and I'd like you to start by giving us uh, an overview, as you do in the book, of how the thinking of economists has changed over the last half century or so, particularly on, uh, on growth, but also with the related topic of, uh, of poverty. What have we learned that is true and not true? What are some of the false turns we took uh, in our research?
1: Growth is obviously the central question in economics, and it's the one that Adam Smith started us off with so long ago. And I think it's really only very recently that we've started to come towards a reasonable understanding of what it is that makes economies grow and why it's so difficult. And I think one of the keys to this has been the collection of data and the use of computers to manipulate that data and run different kinds of regressions and so on. And there are some unsung heroes of economics who are the people, the economic historians, who grubbed around in libraries. One of them that I feature in the book is Angus Madison, who spent a long time at the OECD in Paris. But there are others, too, working on international projects, doing the painstaking work of putting together the databases showing growth and prices and population in a wide range of countries over a very long period and that data set wasn't really available until or around the 1980s onwards and that was when economists were able to look much more carefully at growth theories and before that we had reasonably enough assumed that um, it was what you put into the economy that determined what you got out that growth depended on a growth and output depended on growth and in inputs labor and capital and that was the workhorse solo model that economists used for so long the neoclassical growth model The trouble was that actually a long time ago, even that model couldn't explain a lot of the growth and output in the countries that did succeed, and it was put into a black box term, technological progress. With the availability of all the data, we were able to get, as a profession, to get a much better insight into how that technological progress could feed on itself, could snowball in endogenous growth theories, and also why human capital mattered. So modern growth theories focus on the two things that intuitively make complete sense about why economies grow. One is the technology that they're using to make more efficient use of all the inputs. And the other is the people and their level of skills and education, because it's people who use technology and it's people who have the ideas that develop new technology. And when you start um, taking account of these two factors, the growth and the human capital in models, you get feedback loops. Um, as an, an engineer would call them, and, and you get a snowball in growth. And that's exactly the metaphor that we use. We talk about growth miracles. So they're quite rare, but when they happen, they're quite dramatic. And if you think about the example of the East Asian countries in, in the 70s and 80s, or Ireland or, or Greece in the 1980s onwards, that's exactly the pattern that we see. All of a sudden, things click into place feedback loops start to kick in, the endogenous growth, and you get very dramatic changes in living standards in countries within a generation.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Angus Madison. It's a name that hasn't been mentioned here on the in our series. And, well, it's a double D, Madison, and we'll put up a link to to his work uh, at, at econtalk.org. You talk about the painstaking work that was done, and I, I especially like the point that you make in the book, and you've just mentioned that Using l as labor as an input is a bizarrely simplistic, crude, obviously uh, incomplete measure of of what people contribute to growth it's a, a black box kind of idea. How reliable do you think the Madison estimates are and given the crudeness that I suspect is in much of that data much of those data, uh, how reliable do you think the a kind of metric work is that tries to to measure these separate factors that contribute to growth.
1: I think it's pretty obvious that they are very crude estimates, and the concept of output itself changes over time. There's a, a marvelous paper Brad DeLong wrote quite a while ago about the ways that we construct GDP and that it can't possibly take account of improvements in living standards that are qualitatively different. Uh, a while ago, there was a program on television about modern people leading the life of uh, a family in 1900, and the reason that woman in the family wanted to quit the experiment, and, and it drove her to despair, was that she couldn't get shampoo to wash her hair. It, had, it wasn't invented until the 1930s, and I think that's quite a good example of, um, although you might think it's a trivial one, no, uh, of the sort of that. qualitative change in output that make it actually impossible, really, to accurately measure changes in living standards over long periods. And I must say, over time, I've become much more skeptical myself about using um, macroeconomic regressions of growth, because they're such broad-brush measures. The data are likely to be very inaccurate, especially for developing countries, where people often want to apply these regressions. And if you think about, really, how statistics are collected in a developing country that can't... Um, deliver energy or water to its people, it's probably not going to be very good at collecting statistics either. So for all these reasons, I'm I'm quite sceptical about using regressions mechanically. Having said that, I think the evidence that human capital matters, education matters, and these technology matters is sufficiently consistent that we can can rely on it. And it's intuitively plausible as well. So we have a good theoretical understanding of why those two things would matter for growth, and also all the evidence appears to back that up. So I put, I put some reliance on that, but I put much less reliance on um, the kind of regressions people do where they say, um, if you build more roads, then growth goes up X percent, I don't think they are very helpful at all. No. And we need to think much more carefully about really the microeconomics of it, why do markets work, what makes them work well, what kind of incentives do people face? Uh, what incentives do they have to get education when there's no return because there are no good jobs in their economy? So thinking about the kind of catch-22s that the modern type of growth theory points you to is, is really useful and fruitful for developing policy.
0: Yeah, I agree, especially the, em- the emphasis on institutions and governance. Um, now, I want to come back to, to that 1900 TV show but because um, I think that's a phenomenal example. And in a little bit, I want to talk about the happiness research which I think uh, – which you write about and which I think that story illuminates. And I also want to tell our listeners that that Brad DeLong paper that that you mentioned is phenomenal. And I, we'll put a link up to that also. Um, it's a really wonderful introduction to the challenges of measuring things over time. Um, well, let me, let me try, a, try a challenge. A lot of the book – which uh, there's a lovely amount of nuance in the book, which is uh, rare. Um, you don't grind an ax and you – Occasionally we'll grind an axe back at those who are grinding their own axe. It's just – it's a very – there's some nice subtle writing in there about the positives, the pros and cons of economic – the economic way of thinking and economic theory. And you defend economics against the charges of irrelevancy and formalism a a number of times. But let me pose the following challenge. Let's go back to Adam Smith, which as you mentioned was where it all started, Uh, at least uh, this issue, this focus on growth and wealth. And he had certain insights into the wealth of nations, which was what he was trying to explain. He argued in the first 25 pages, which I strongly recommend to, to everyone, uh, that the crucial factors were specialization, trade, uh, the extent of the market, and the interaction of those factors with technology uh, to reduce the amount of labor that was used and make people more productive. Uh, it's all there. Have we really added much via the formal approaches – uh, that have been done in the last 25 years, the, the the endogenous growth theory that Paul Romer and and Robert Lucas have have put forward, and we've interviewed both of them here, and they're wonderful economists. I respect them immensely. But much of what they're doing is clothing Adam Smith's intuition in more formal clothing. Is there how much of a gain is there?
1: I think that's a very a very good challenge, and um, in a sense. I think it's absolutely true that the key insights of economics are to be found either in Adam Smith or in the simple truth that things that are supposed to add up will, will add up. So economic, a lot of economics is about accounting identities, actually. Yeah, constraints. And, um, and... between those two things, I think you could well argue that um, most people wouldn't need to, wouldn't need to know much more. But I do think the formalism is helpful for, for several reasons. Um, one important reason is the clarity of thought that it brings. And all the great economists of the period since Adam Smith have been very adept at, at the mathematical formalism because it forces um, logic and clarity of thought on your understanding of the world. And what you should then do is throw away the formalism and explain it in terms that Adam Smith readers would also have understood. And yeah, I, th- I that think that economists ought to be able to do that, that communication, and very many of them don't. And that's why the profession brings these charges of formalism upon itself. The other reason is that the formalism helps you with the econometrics. And one of the many effects of the computer revolution is that um, we have data sets and econometric techniques which I think can really really help in public policy, in terms of public policy. And um, uh, the, the really good kinds of econometrics like the use of um, micro modeling transportation systems in competition policy, uh, market design for spectrum auctions, all of those kinds of things are built on formalism. And I think that as a result of that and the capacity of the computers and the techniques, we are getting, in some areas, much better public policy thanks to economists than we we used
0: to. Well, I want to come back to that at the end, um, that that very question. But I want to stick with this issue in the area of growth and and policy there. The the micro examples you give I think are compelling and interesting. But I think in this growth area, I'm going to sharpen the challenge a bit. Uh, Given the quality of the data, which is disappointing uh, realistically, and given the uh, obsession with econometric technique – and I believe the, the uh, pushing of econometrics way beyond its, um, its productive capacity given the quality of the data. Couldn't you argue that the formalism combined with the econometrics has actually done dramatically, dramatically more harm than good in development policy over the last 50 years? The different fads that have come out of theory um, have actually done dramatic harm to the poor people of the world. In particular, you, you do a very nice job in the opening chapters critiquing and weighing the value of all these back and forths on growth. And Again, I would put it this way. If I said, what have we learned about growth uh, over the last 50 years? I'm tempted to say – and when I say growth, I mean development policy, bringing people out of poverty, not just sustaining growth or creating it. To, I'm really talking about creating it to start with. You could argue we we've really – learned what doesn't work, and we don't have much of a recipe, and that along the way we've done a great deal of harm. What do you think?
1: I'm inclined to agree with you, actually. I think um, development policy is an area where economists have certainly not covered themselves in glory in the post-war period. And as you say, there have been all kinds of fads. They have been very politically motivated. And they have used, um, on either either side of that debate... um, the kind of crude regressions that we've been talking about um, to, to justify pouring in lots of money that, as we know, hasn't been spent well and has actually been a curse on many on many poor economies. Um, so I think that's fair criticism. But I would say that I, I think development economics has at last um, moved away from that to a much more sophisticated debate. I mean, there are still obviously disagreements between people and you get the sort of debate that um, has taken place between Jeff Sachs, who's an advocate of putting in more money, and Bill Easterly, who's moved, uh, moved back from, from that kind of approach, given his own experiences. and They've both written about that in, in the op-ed columns. Um, but I think, I think there's much more realism about the limits of our capacity, uh, certainly externally, to, to uh, move an economy from the poverty traps onto, onto the path of growth.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I, I, that's the positive side of me. That's the optimist side, right? Um, the humility. Yeah, the humility. And, um, of course, I have a feeling that in 1975 they said the same thing. I just have a suspicion. I said, well, now we know what doesn't work. Let's We can put that to the side. We, we can be more realistic. It's not just capital. You know, I think one of the curses of the solo model Again, although I agree with you that formalism helps you sharpen your uh, your thoughts, sometimes it also can lead you astray. One of the tragedies of the solo model was that by focusing on K and L, it led us to this very mindless K standing for capital, L standing for labor, sort of mindless idea that we need we need more capital, better labor that is more educated labor, and we just need to to add um, uh, investment and education, and we'll make poor countries rich. And I guess you could argue that the theory was basically right. It's just that the implementation was inherently flawed because of incentives and poor governance. So uh, maybe we shouldn't be too tough on the on the theorists. They they were onto something.
1: Well, theoretical humility is a big step forward, and um, so that makes me feel more positive. What I'm not sure that we've learned is that the right conclusions will change over time because the context changes. And I often think this when um, you hear people say. Uh, developing countries need, need some protection. It's a, for example, it's a bad idea to have freer trade through the WTO because look at the case of, of Japan and Korea, which developed with a, a lot of protection for domestic industries. And the answer to that is that the world economy in the 1950s and 60s was a very different place than it is now. And the goods that people were making and buying were much simpler. And the capacity of a developing country now to move into manufacture of the kinds of goods that are traded these days is... Um, it's not the same as the capacity of Japan to move into uh, basic
0: consumer goods manufacture in the 60s. It's an excellent point. Uh, I often feel that I oversell um, markets. I'm a big fan of markets, and, and they are glorious, but uh, they don't work as well in some countries as they do in the United States for a whole bunch of reasons, some of which are um, institutions and, and norms, social norms but um it's not cl- I, I don't know how well markets worked in 1870 in the united states right we have i think one of the great cha- challenges and and probably unsolvable problems is um having the kind of nuanced understanding of of institutional effects across historical time periods like that there's just it's you know you can read the novels of the day as a, maybe the best way to get a flavor of how life really was and how dynamic, say, the labor market was. Right, for me, the key issue in these—some one of the key issues in these kind of discussions—is creative destruction, which uh, drives the improvements in our standard of living in the United States. And one of the reasons creative destruction is tolerated very well in the United States by most people, uh, and, and advocated by many, is because the recovery is so fast the recovery weren't fast, maybe we wouldn't be so enthusiastic about it. You wonder, whether well, what was it like in 1850 or 1870 in America or in England? Mm. And if you read the novels of the day, you get a very often pessimistic picture. But, of course, Charles Dickens had an axe to grind of his own. He wasn't trying to portray life accurately. He, he had his own philosophical bent. So you, you have to take that with many, many grains of salt.
1: I'm a great believer in having the historical understanding as well as the mathematics. And I think maths and history are the... Ideal background for anybody who's uh, who's training in economics, um, but th- th- the key for me is that the whole institutional context matters, and markets are actually one form of institution and and so they may work well and they and they may work badly depending on the whole array of institutions in the economy. So to give the basic example, if you have um, property rights that are well enforced and a good legal system, markets are going to work better and in many developing countries where you don't have that, then the market's are automatically not going to work so
0: well. Yeah, and I, I would I would say that the challenge then is, uh, I don't have an answer to this, the, the formalism isn't very good at handling those institutional details. Um, and it's it's not clear whether the road to a deeper understanding is through um, case studies or, or more theory. I, I think case studies are... The kind that De Soto does, essentially, and Hernando De Soto, in examining bureaucratic barriers to entrepreneurship, for example, and property rights, is uh, is very very important.
1: And um, experiments too. And there is now some progress in uh, having controlled experiments in, in development policy, uh, trying an intervention in education in um, two separate villages: one as a control, and one one to see what impacts a certain policy change will have, more teaching assistants or smaller class sizes or something
0: like that. Uh-huh. Modern books, cleaner, <laughs> painted walls, some trivial things probably could make a difference that's no. not obvious. Who's doing that, do you know? I'm sorry? Who's doing those kinds of ex- – are people doing those kind of experiments?
1: Um, yes, Abhijit Banerjee at MIT uh-huh. has um, written quite a lot about this, and there is a book – with an essay by him and some responses by a number of other economists debating the pros and cons of, of an experimental approach to development economics.
0: The ethics are a little bit challenging as well.
1: Indeed, that's one of the points that the respondents
0: make. Well, let's shift gears. Let's, let's talk about happiness, which uh, you have a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, I want to go back to your example of, uh, I think you're referring to Victorian House. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, tell us about that TV show, because I found it very interesting.
1: It was shown in the year two thousand. They got a family to lead the life of uh, an exactly comparable family a uh, hundred years earlier, um, and uh, we're very strict about it. We're very strict about enforcing, so that the kids couldn't have any time out to go and play with their with their uh, Nintendo DSs, and um, the food had to be the same that was available. in in that era, and, and as I said, the, the woman wasn't allowed to use shampoo and she had to do all the washing by hand using the caustic soda and, and so forth. And um, it was obviously an extraordinarily harsh life 100 years earlier, even for um, a, a, a reasonably prosperous family. And so the great lesson of the show was just how much living standards have improved in a shorter period of 100 years.
0: Yeah, I strongly recommend that show. There's an American version also called Frontier House, where American five families were put out on the Montana frontier of 1880 to live with that technology, that lifestyle. Uh, of course, they don't really do it accurately because there was. I know there was a pregnant woman who wanted to be on the show and deliver a baby in 1880 style, but she doesn't know much. Probably didn't know much about childbirth in 1880. Uh, it was, uh, often led to the death of the mother and the death of the child. Uh, and so she wasn't allowed on the show, but uh, it does dramatize uh, something I think most people are remarkably unaware of, which was... It makes uh, you so
1: glad not to be your grandparents and, and is an amazing demonstration of the power of the growth machine once it gets going.
0: But as you point out in the book, it's not clear how... It's clear that a person going back to 1880 or 1900 would be miserable. It's clear that a person coming forward, a much... More interesting show that is yet to be filmed uh, would possibly uh, be remarkably uh, happy. I, I don't know; it's an open question. But it's not clear that if you ask people in 1900 if they were happy, and you ask them today that they're much happier today, right?
1: This is true, and this is the fact that um, happiness gurus make make a great deal of that over time. Although we've become much richer and in these demonstrable ways our standard of living has improved. When you ask people how they're feeling, they don't report feeling very much happier than they used to. I have to say I'm I'm skeptical about this kind of evidence because of the way the data are constructed. They're just different animals. GDP per capita is a time series that can grow without bound over time. Happiness is an emotion um, which doesn't behave in the same way you can't imagine that it would grow without band and we'd walk around deliriously happy at some point in the future and in fact it's constructed from surveys which usually give people three choices would you say you're um, not happy reasonably happy very happy so even if everybody said very happy there's an upper bound on how high that variable could go and so i don't think the regressions tell you all that much and actually there's um a recent pamphlet from the Institute of Economic Affairs here in London by Paul Ormerod that goes into quite a lot of detail about how the statistics are constructed and and, and how they work. There's evidence looking at cross-sections of data, people living in a country at a particular time or different countries at the same time, and they show that actually happiness does go up with income. But they show much more clearly that happiness depends on things like um, having a job, being married, being part of a community a faith community and so forth. So um, I think there are some conclusions we can draw from the happiness studies, but the one that people often draw, which is that growth doesn't make you happy, I have some doubts about.
0: Yeah. What do you think the implications of it are for, for policy and as well as for the data we collect, which I also found very interesting in the book. There's a you give a very nice discussion of of GDP, the pros and cons. Obviously Growth policy is trying to manipulate GDP. It shouldn't be. It should be trying to manipulate something else, presumably, that we can't measure that we'd like to. But uh, talk about that.
1: GDP is obviously the target of policy because it's easy to measure and we know more or less what it is. It's not a very ambiguous uh, thing, and so governments all do it. Um, There are already better indicators, I think. The Human Development Index includes quite a, a number of things that I think everybody would agree are valuable policy targets, such as life expectancy, infant mortality, access to uh, clean water, literacy rates, and so forth. So um, all of those things, it makes sense for policy to look at as well. But they're highly correlated with GDP, at least up to a level of about $20,000 per capita. So for a lot of countries in the world, um, growth, economic growth, GDP growth, is still a really good policy target because it brings along all the other things that you care about as well. But I I think there are some lessons in the happiness literature still for policy. I'm just not sure they're they're economic lessons. Um, It tells us that in societies that have already attained a certain level of wealth, governments should pay attention to um, social stability, um, mental health, and, and so forth. And I think they're really important issues, but I'm not sure that economists have a lot more to say about them, actually
0: yeah I think you're right. I think any thoughtful human being understands that money is not the um road to happiness. It helps, but it's not it's not sufficient um, and most of us I think understand what those other things are that you mentioned that that do help uh keeping our children alive healthy uh job opportunities opportunities to express yourself creatively in and out of the workplace, belonging to a community um creating ties with others about things that are greater than yourself. Those things all matter uh, a great deal. And those are things I think that government really has nothing to do with. Um, some would say that, that inequality would be an, an area where government might play a role. What do you think?
1: I think, um, I think there is evidence that societies that become too unequal are not, are not stable societies and um, suffer a growth penalty because of it. Uh, I'm not sure that there's clear evidence of what too unequal is, Um, so you might look at some developing countries and say, this level of inequality is not sustainable. Take China at the moment, for example, there has uh, come to be quite extreme income inequality because some parts of China are growing extremely fast and others in the rural hinterlands are not growing at all. So you might look at those figures and say, that's not sustainable in time the fruits of growth will have to spill over to the rest of the country or something pretty bad will happen there some kind of instability um that's that's quite an, a straightforward example but looking at the range of inequalities in the western democracies i don't think we've got particularly clear evidence that uh, that some are, are are too unequal or not voters don't seem to like it when it becomes too extreme i must say i think um there is in in, in the evolutionary literature as well evidence of a sense of fairness, and if society has become too unequal, our sense of fairness is uh, is offended.
0: Well, in the United States, it has tremendous um, political resonance in the sense that it's talked about a lot. Uh, there's a debate about whether it's, that talk is effective, but so-called class warfare talk in the United States uh, is heard a great deal on the, in the political uh, arena, although... Uh, it's not acted on, I don't think, very aggressively. It's mainly a rhetorical device. My puzzle always is I always ask people um, if they know their income. Most people know their annual salary uh, within, say, 10%. They struggle to tell you what their benefits are worth. They really Most people don't think about it much, but it's an increasingly important part of a pay package in the United States. And then if I ask you, when you include the benefits with the salary, what percentile do you think you are in the income distribution? I don't think most people have the faintest idea. No. They might have an idea they're in the top half or the bottom half. Maybe. Maybe. But then if you ask them, well, over the last 10 years, where do you think you've moved up or down? In absolute terms, most people have some idea. But in relative terms, they can't have any, you can't have any idea other than what you hear in the political arena. Comment on that, and, and comment on, I'd be curious from a British perspective, what uh, role it plays in, in politics there. It, it certainly plays a role in the rhetoric here.
1: And, and to some extent here as well. People do mind, I think, if they can see that their real disposable incomes are going down. Um, often that's because of taxation rather than anything that's happening to income, but, but they, they certainly mind that. In some countries, I think people also mind examples of, of other people becoming extremely rich. So there is a politics of envy in um, some places, depending on their cultural background. That's probably true in some parts of continental Europe, but not here in Britain and not in, not in the United States. Uh, there has been, uh, by our government, a heroic attempt over the past 10 years or so to make incomes more equal using tax policy and using um um, earned income tax credits, we call it something different, but it's modeled on the American system to make sure that work pays for people on, on low incomes. And the redistributive effects of tax and taxation and welfare has been extremely large, but even so, incomes have become more unequal because the um, underlying growth in income inequality has increased. And that uh, seems to be pretty clearly driven by, by technology, by superstar effects in lots of markets.
0: Talk um, about,
1: but just clarify
0: that for a sec. When you say superstar um, effects, explain... In many,
1: many professions, there are um, some people who, because they can uh, leverage their skills into a wide market, can make uh, extremely high incomes. And the classic example is a movie star. So somebody who becomes a movie star is probably only a little bit better an actor than somebody who's not become a big star. But because their movies can be shown all around the world, and because audiences want them, because they're familiar and they know they're going to get a, a good performance, then those people capture a really high share of all the revenue that's available in that market. And that's happened in, in a number of other professions too um, because of the impact of, of technologies and because of globalization opening up world markets to all kinds of professions. So in law, in, in, in medicine, to give other examples, that, that pattern has... Or, or football, or... Um, performing arts, all kinds of areas where there are are superstar effects going
0: on. There's an extra effect of people wanting to see the best, so they don't just want to see a good one. You know, seeing the best often will earn a premium well above what would seem to be the premium that might normally follow. This is work by uh, Sherwin Rosen and Ed Lazier. Carry on. I interrupted um, you, sorry.
1: It reminds me, going back to history, of the same kind of developments in income inequality that um, the leading economies saw in the late 19th century. And that took actually took a generation to work through. And uh, the solution that time around was that um, the skills that were in short supply were filled by the public education system and the development of, of high schools throughout the early 20th century. And when a, a wide range of the population had better human capital, inequality narrowed. And And also, of course, there were political reactions, and trades unions campaigned for better paying conditions as well. But I think these, un- these underlying swings in income inequality, driven by technology, driven by globalization, actually can take a long time to go into reverse. And for me, the focus of policy ought to be making sure that there's nobody um, miserized by the process, and that um, people are not actually seeing their real incomes decline over time when the rest of society is getting much richer.
0: Hard to measure that. We often are implying a measure of that by looking at different cross-sections, but of course those can be very misleading. They're not the same people, and it looks as if certain people are being made poor. I just saw a recent study that showed that uh, if you only have a high school degree in the United States, if you've never been to college, the wages of high school graduates are falling, or flat would be a better way to say it. I'm not sure they measure cost of living correctly, but even so, they're much flatter than than higher forms of education returns. But, of course, the number of people who only go to college is a dwindling number in the United States. It's falling dramatically over time. Mm. So you don't want to use that measure as a measure of what's happened to people 25 years ago who had a col- ha- only had a high school degree. Uh, is that happening in the U.K. also, by the way? Are increasing numbers going on to college?
1: They are, and it's been a, a target of government policy. And, as you might expect, as well, because of the increasing numbers, the return to a college education has been has been declining over time yeah, but it's extremely complex as as you're just saying to keep track of the individuals and, and what's happening to them, and that's just as true globally, because when people talk about global inequality being extreme, they're essentially comparing Bill Gates to somebody who lives in Benin and is the poorest person, without taking account of what's happening to the distribution in the middle. And the complexities there. And actually, I think it's the the individual identities that matter. So if you look at national averages, Brazil looks like a much poorer country than France. And France gives aid to Brazil. But actually, the richest Brazilians are much better off than the poorest French people whose tax money is paying for the overseas aid. And there's a a terrific book um, by Branko Jovinovich of the World Bank looking at the details of, of all of this data.
0: Yeah, I can't think of anything more foolish than looking at world inequality, uh, given that the institutions that are creating that distribution and the tastes and the preferences and the skills, and it it's such an emergent and complex phenomenon that the idea that that we could somehow manipulate it is just bizarre. Uh, yeah. C- coming back to your point about the attempts of, of the government there to to make the distribution of income more equal. Of course, one of the effects that no one talks about is that if you raise taxes on the wealthy and you lower them on the poor, you're going to like you're likely going to increase before tax incomes for the wealthy because of market effects, competition to get these uh, the skilled folks, and that in itself is going to increase measured pre tax inequality. So it, it, there is a certain um, unintended consequence there that is going to offset some of the attempts?
1: Well, I think unintended consequences result from pretty much any government intervention in the economy, and uh, one of my hopes for economists in the future is that we can start to make policymakers pay more attention to to what the unintended consequences might be.
0: I think it's probably our best thing, really, is pointing those out.
1: Yes, and uh, it's bound to make us very unpopular, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's so sad, isn't it? Um, I I learned this from someone who attributed it to Thomas Sowell, who said the, the essence of economics is to say, and then what? Which is a, a variation on the Bastiat point about the seen and the unseen, yeah. you know, that we see what happens, but we ignore the, the subsequent and, and often more important effects. Well, let's go back to that happiness research for a minute and, and GDP. Um, is there any, do you have anything else you want to say about, um, you made the nice point about the, hu- is it the human development index? So yes. it's called HDI for lower income countries. I think that's extremely important looking at quality of life issues. Is there any comparable, um, index that you might imagine for those of us fortunate enough to live in, in highly developed economies?
1: People have tried to develop other indices and, um, they often come from the environmental um, camp and uh, create indices that um, take away from GDP rather than adding to it. So they will adjust for pollution. um, They might adjust for crime rates. They try to think of all the social bads that come come along with economic growth and deduct those. And I've played around with some of these on the Friends of the Earth website, for example, and they have constructed them so that you can't get any improvements. (laughs) (laughs) So they've come to them with a very pessimistic frame of mind. I think any single index is going to be problematic because you have to think about what to leave out and what to put in. So those take out all the uh, the bad, the the pollution and so forth. They don't add in any of the technical improvements that we were talking about earlier. They don't talk about how much better your life is if you have um, a a computer at home or if you have... um, any any of the new kinds of products that we've been talking about or any of the price declines in um, consumer goods or the variety. So they don't add any of the positives, they just take away the negatives. I think it makes more sense to look at a whole array of indicators that you think are important to you. And actually the Australian government does this, and they publish, um, I think it's an annual um, a, a, an array of statistics. They figured out which ones they should include through a, a massive public consultation exercise and asked the Australian people what they cared about, what <laughs> outcomes they wanted their governments to deliver. So as well as growth and all the usual economic statistics, they just published the others separately. And you can put your own weights on them. You don't have to have somebody from a campaign group put put their weights on for you.
0: Interesting. Well, we go back to the Friends of the Earth. One of the, one of the, the, the methodological... Uh, ideas that, that underlie those estimates is the implication that if, say, just to take a crude example, if, if the rest of the world achieved the living standards of the West or the United States, pick any wealthy country, that somehow we'd be poorer because than, than the crude income numbers would indicate because it wouldn't measure all the stuff we'd used up to get there. When in fact, if the world had the standard of living of the united states or the west generally the air would be cleaner uh i suspect the water would be definitely cleaner uh, especially the drinking water and um it's true there'd be less of certain natural resources but presumably we'd have other technologies that would be substitutes for them so uh the pollution part i accept but i think there's a big uh fetish about natural resource um depletion that, that, that I think the environmental movement misunderstands.
1: Well, I think there's a really profound philosophical difference between the environmental movement and, and economists, which is that environmentalists um, extrapolate from today's conditions into the future. And economists tend to assume that if there's a shortage or if there's a problem, something will adjust. Prices and markets will reflect what's, what's happening and behavior will adjust. And um, there's a a great example of that in Paul Ehrlich's population time bomb of the 1970s, when he famously bet with Julian Simon that the prices of um, certain metals would would not go down because of shortages, and he lost the bet comprehensively. They all they all declined because technology adjusted and people changed their behaviour.
0: Yeah, of course they're rising right now. Uh, it is it, uh, a short-term bet. It's not always a very good bet, but over longer time periods, it's usually yes. a very good bet.
1: It was. It a 10-year one, and I think that's probably the right kind of time frame. Um, because take food prices now, uh, you can to start with bring some land back into production pretty quickly and have some effect on food prices, and then over a period of five or seven years, have technical changes and, in fact, probably shorter because of the biotech revolution yeah. and the kinds of seeds that are available now, increase efficiency of the land under cultivation.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Julian Simon, by the way, because I've been thinking about him after reading your discussion of endogenous growth theory. Uh, Paul Romer, one of his really wonderful insights is the, the power of um, just size, which again, I think partly goes back to Adam Smith, divisional labor being limited by the extent of the market idea. But Simon was a big fan of population growth, put him in a very small group. But um, I'm very sympathetic to that insight. And I think he's right. I think uh, in general, more people tends to lead to a better standard of living.
1: I think so too. And as you say, it's a pretty unpopular view, but I can't think of any examples of economies with shrinking populations where real incomes per capita have grown.
0: And as you point out very nicely in the book, uh, as world population has grown, world poverty has not just declined in relative terms, but in many areas in absolute terms, which is really extraordinary. It is. It's a secret too, by the way. Thank you for trying to make it more widely known. It's, it's a very... Uh, it's an extraordinary moment in, human, in the human enterprise. It's not, not appreciated. One of the extraordinary
1: things is how pessimistic we are, nevertheless. Yeah. And um, I think it's partly because the new technologies we have, I mean people have become more aware of what the rest of the world is like. And, of course, it's pretty terrible in many places. But knowing what things are like now doesn't tell you anything about the trends and the causes of the trends.
0: Right, things are getting... In many places, not all. In many places, getting better. A lot of it, as you point out, is being driven by China. Um, China's improvement carries a lot of weight in the world population.
1: It does. In India, too.
0: Yeah, I'm one of the
1: rare optimists about much of Africa, I must say. I think a lot of our attention in Africa is uh, attracted by the basket case countries, but there are many other countries in Africa which are possibly... Just getting onto that path of growth for the first time. I think there are some signs of hope.
0: What are they? That makes me feel good. Tell me.
1: One example is the success of mobile phones in so many African countries, which has happened outside the radar of the development community. It's been done by private companies, and it's highly profitable. And there are um, African countries that are building the networks and selling the phones.
0: Privately and and not, not it's only in the last
1: few years that people have noticed, but it's been an extraordinary explosion of technology and business opportunities. And having a mobile phone turns somebody from um, an unemployed labourer in a township to a self-employed artisan because they can advertise their, their services and, and find work. It's edging people into the formal economy from the informal economy. It's bringing all the social benefits of communication. Now there are schemes to do banking over the mobile phone, which are again, very profitable and very successful. And bringing financial services to people who've not had anywhere safe to put their money will be a tremendous benefit.
0: You really can't underestimate the power of those connections. Um, I never thought about that, So, why that might be as important as, as, you, as it is. Just the idea that you could advertise um, and make people aware of your product, that's a huge advantage that you wouldn't have without that.
1: You could set up a little business selling SIM cards and... Um, uh, th- when you have that in a village, a little cluster of other businesses sets up around it. Somebody will sell soft drinks next to the person selling the SIM cards because people will have to borrow the handset to put the card in, and so they'll sit there and have a drink as well. And it's it's very small scale, but um, it gives me a little hope.
0: Well, I'm a big fan of, of Easterly's uh, insights and, and the belief that grand things usually fail. So I'm all for small scale, small steps.
1: We've
0: tried the big things, so I think we yeah. have to put our faith in the small ones. There, uh, let's just uh, shift gears again. Uh, you have a lot of nice uh, examples of um, how economics is not as narrow as the caricature, and reminded me of a quote of George Stigler. George Stigler, I once said, uh, "There's only one social science, and we are its practitioners." Mm-hmm. And. I don't know whether I heard him say it. I feel like his voice was so distinctive. I feel like I could hear him saying it. But you know, I think he meant that neoclassical economics, the, what Deirdre McCluskey called in a recent podcast, max u," the maximization of satisfaction or utility constrained by income or other limitations, was the only way to look at human beings as they went about their lives. So economics has the tools to analyze psychology and sociology, political science and anthropology, and certainly Economics has influenced those fields tremendously. But in recent years, as you point out, I think, um, the influence has mainly gone the other way. It's going on in both directions, obviously, but economics is much less about rational choice than it was when, when you and I were in graduate school.
1: And it's been very fruitful, I think. The insights from psychology apply to financial markets. I find it hard to see how anybody can deny the importance of, of, of behavioral finance, and I think we've got a much richer understanding of how markets behave, how financial markets in particular, how people make choices about financial decisions that will affect them far into the future because of our psychological incapacity to do those kinds of calculations and the, the, the risk aversion that we have and the loss aversion that we have. So I think that's been incredibly, incredibly fruitful.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you were in graduate school in the early 80s. That's right. And I was in gradu- and you were at Harvard. I was at Chicago in the late 70s. And uh, I have to confess with some embarrassment that the culture among, among the graduate students and probably among the faculty was to really uh, look down on the other social sciences and to see them as a total waste of time. That Stiglarian view. Was that true at Harvard? It certainly was true at Chicago.
1: I think it was true. And that was the high watermark, really, of... Um of uh, the Max U approach, I think wasn't it that, that kind of period? And from the late eighties onwards, it started it started to retreat. But I think we too were very proud of our ability to do really complicated math and uh, <laughs> sit there with the physics and uh, engineering students in the in the computer room doing doing the econometrics.
0: Yeah, how much of that do you think was our desire to be uh, philosopher kings combined with social engineering? Certainly well, gave a certainly gave a gloss to the to the claim.
1: It takes you into the sociology of, of economics, really, doesn't it? One of the things that's always puzzled me is why so few women do economics, and the numbers, the proportion declines the further you, gro- you go through um, the professional training. So, I think in this country it's it's fifty uh, fifty in high school, and then a third female in, under, at undergraduate level, and, and every step beyond that, the number of women declines. And um, obviously, I've not had any problem with economics, so I found that a bit of a puzzle. Um, I, I think the sociology of, of economics has um, inclined us towards that sort of attitude to other social sciences and humanities. You can see it in the way so many departments dropped a history economic history requirement, which I think is a, a shame. I think you know you learn a lot from economic history. And um, I'm not sure how much is changing. I think it needs to change. I think the curriculum needs to change to take in some of the developments that we've been discussing. And I'm not sure that the impetus is there for it to happen yet.
0: Are you suggesting that, that economics is something of a male field? I, I don't mean in numbers, I meant in, in outlook. Um, in numbers, yeah. you're absolutely right. And you're, that 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 point is undeniable.
1: I think, I think that's a suspicion. And um, personally I don't feel it is because obviously I'm female not male but I think that must be sufficient suspicion when you look at the numbers
0: yeah that's an interesting uh, point there's definitely a um, a certain cultural attitude toward um, the field within its practitioners that is um, uh, how do I word this in an attractive <laughs> somewhat attractive way um I, I don't know. More bully-like than uh, I would have preferred. Now that I look back on it, the workshop system at Chicago, which I found to be glorious, is uh, rather aggressive. Well, let's just leave it at that. And, well, there's
1: kind of intellectual pride and arrogance, which is great if you are good at it, and it's very discouraging if if you if you're not or if you don't if you don't get it straight away. So I think people are easily discouraged out of it, and then of course these things become self-reinforcing. So a young woman thinking about what to do with her life will look at the news and find out that everybody who's talking about economics is somebody starting jargon about things going up and down in the financial markets, and that's a, that's a terrific
0: turnoff. Yeah, no, that's a big problem. Yeah, I think another way to phrase it is there's a certain gladiator uh, aspect to to academic life generally, by the way. It's not just an economics issue, but I think it's more prevalent in economics where the tools are the, the formalism we've been talking about, and that may not be as... Uh, friendly a world most gladiators uh, to women most gladiators historically have been men Um, but we're only talking of course about averages and I I desperately uh, would like to see more women in economics uh, if they choose to follow that path Indeed. can you say anything about uh, economics in England versus the United States you came to the United States for your degree and I assume you've bounced back and forth in your travels as a journalist and as an author. You have tremendous familiarity with uh, economists on both sides of the Atlantic, which is very rare. Um, I don't mean just the fact that it's both sides of the Atlantic, but just that you're familiar with lots of economics. That's rare. Any, um, any thoughts on any differences and trends that you think might be of interest?
1: Well, I think the big difference is um, between the Anglo-Saxon world and continental European, and actually that is diminishing dramatically over time, and the kind of economics that economists in Italy or Germany or France do is now much more, much closer to the kind of economics that people in the UK or US will do, and I think that's partly um, because of changes in the subject, but also partly because of the effect of the English language, and people um, living in those countries who, who used not to publish in English now will publish in English and have become part of the same intellectual current so I think I think the world of global economics actually has become more uh, more cohesive than it used to be when when I started out twenty years ago.
0: Have you read that? Uh, did you read the recent biography of Schumpeter? The bio- I have, yes. the Profit of Innovation. We interviewed. Yeah, I interviewed uh, McCraw, the author. Um, that that's a a wonderful first of all. It's a wonderful look at Schumpeter, who's who you talk about and who I think is greatly under underappreciated. And I would. You know you talk about the economics of information and and the role of uh, imperfect competition in that literature, but Schumpeter saw that, wrote about it. Um, but it's an interesting look into the different currents of intellectual uh, life in the, in that era.
1: and I, I don't think we have now the same kind of um, the same kind of chasms as existed uh, in the in the 1930s when there were extremely different schools. Between the U.S. and U.K. as well, but certainly between continental Europe and and the Anglo-Saxon world, I think we've come closer.
0: Yeah, it's one of the effects of globalization, law of one price, something like that. Anyway, like that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the worst uh, uh, rivers have been shut up, fortunately, I think, and and shunted off to the uh, side. Although we've lost a few good ones, I think, also. So it's a mix. It's a mixed bag. Well, let's close with a discussion of of optimism. You talk about some of the areas where economics is made. Uh, important contributions. And some of those I agreed with, some of them I didn't. But talk about where you think uh, economics has done very well.
1: Since I was a student, I think we have um, done much better on macroeconomic policy. In the 1970s, it was an ideological decision what your macroeconomic policy would be, and we now have much greater consensus about uh, running a um, how to run monetary policy and, and budget policy, although in the latter case, not always observed in practice.
0: Yeah, In the last two weeks, we may have gone off the rails, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the in theory, theory, we've done much better over the last 25 um,
1: years. I think the important areas, though, have been the application of microeconomics. So I'd cite competition policy.
0: What do F1. you mean by that? Talk about that.
1: The use of economics to inform antitrust decisions and whether or not to to let mergers go through, um, whether or not to intervene in markets if they're being dominated by companies or groups of companies. And I I think just the development of um, both the economic theory about how markets work and the gathering of evidence in those cases has improved so much that actually we have more competitive markets than we used to with a payoff in terms of productivity and the prices that consumers pay and the choices that they have. And that has been documented by some competition authorities. They've actually tried to measure what the benefits have been, and the OECD has done some studies on this too. So I think that's one improvement. Another terrific area is market design and the kinds of um, things that governments used to award by, by beauty contests, handing out licenses for oil exploration or handing out spectrum, radio spectrum are now almost always um, sold off by auction, which means not only that the government gets the money out of it, but also that you exclude any pe- kind of petty corruption in the process and and that the license goes to the person who's going to use it the most efficiently.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I'm, the, the competition policy, I think, is a, more of a mixed bag. You know, there have been two sort of um, almost competing themes and. In the theory side, you've got the, the game theorists who focus mostly on market imperfection, I think too too much. Then you have the law and economics folks who suggest that, that sort of the standard measures of competition, such as market share, are misleading. So there's been sort of a revolution on both sides. I'm not sure which side has won. It's my impression that, at least in the United States... We're more tolerant of some mergers that we wouldn't have been tolerant before of before because we realize that there's di- competition is a more diverse concept than it might appear in the data. And at the same time, though, we do these large-scale every ten years we decide to take a large firm and beat it up. And by the time the suit's over, they're usually out of business or unimportant anyway. You know, we did this with IBM. Mm. We tried to do it with Microsoft. Uh, we, we, we did it with the cereal industry, which is absolutely absurd. So I'm curious why you're so um, optimistic. it's the right word? I don't know. Why, why do you think that's been an area of improvement?
1: Well, I suppose I have to say partly because I am a member of the competition authority here in the UK, and I think we've been doing a terrific job.
0: Hey, hey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um,
0: what is its role?
1: Its role is to adjudicate on whether or not mergers will lead to a lessening of competition, um, with adverse effects on consumers, and if if so, to remedy them either by blocking the merger or by proposing some other remedies like divestments. And I think, um, I agree with your points about the underlying economic theory. I think the fact that it has become seen to be um, an economic decision, a technocratic decision, if you like that's now embedded in law has actually led, on this side of the Atlantic, to a much tougher competition policy than we had. And, of course, there are difficulties. So, in network industries, um, the the difficulties are well known. Um, In technology industries, you think the best form of competition is another new technology coming along, and and so why beat up a perfectly good company? Um, But even so, I I think the application of competition economics has improved a lot.
0: What's the governance uh of that body there in the United States? I, I feel it's still extremely politicized and that it's often used. Antitrust policy is often used to buy competitors to stay in business because they're just because they're losing, and so they'll lobby their senator to lobby the the uh, administration to crack down on a successful competitor who should be left alone. Uh, are, what kind of political influence are you under?
1: Uh, none. We're an independent body. And so if competitors want to play games, they have to do it through the law courts. They have to do, try and appeal, apply for judicial review or play legal delaying games. And the only areas where there's any political say are national defense and the media.
0: And who appoints them, the members?
1: The members are appointed by um, a government department, formerly by the minister, um, but through a, a recruitment process through the government department. And it's for an eight-year term non-renewable.
0: And how many are there, and what's their general makeup?
1: Panel of about 50 people, four or five will sit on each inquiry, and it's a mix of economists, lawyers, accountants, and a few people with general business experience, but mainly with relevant professional expertise.
0: And is there any um, party breakdown or ideological breakdown that's often implicitly required or explicitly required?
1: Uh, no, it's not monitored. You have to declare if you have active uh, party activities, political activities, but otherwise, not no data on that.
0: Because the way the U.S. does those kind of commission does commissions often is, you know, it's equally it's got to be split between Republicans and Democrats, which uh, is bizarre. Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily lead to good decisions, of course. But that's not the way you do it. No, no. Well, that's interesting. So, how long have you been on it?
1: I'm. Um in my, coming into my eighth year, I've got one year left before I get kicked off.
0: And how many, uh, roughly, how many cases have you looked at?
1: I think it's been nine in all areas of the economy. So it's been a fascinating education in how businesses and markets really do work because as an economist, you generalize about it. And doing this work, you get to actually see what goes on. Yeah,
0: that's it's it's interesting. fascinating.
1: Every market is different.
0: Yeah, that would make an interesting uh, educational, <laughs> uh, education period, I would think.
1: I wish we could find some way of um, capturing what we do to bring to people who are training as economists because it's it gives you fascinating insights into the, the dry theories of the textbooks.
0: So of the nine you've looked at, how many were approved, roughly?
1: I think I let four of them go
0: ahead. And the other, that's what you voted, or the, you were with other usually votes, right? It's
1: a, usually it's a consensus decision. Sometimes it's a vote and the majority decision that uh, can go
0: ahead, so of the nine you run, four of them uh, went through, and five you were stopped R- roughly I can't quite remember right, but fifty fifty roughly roughly any regrets about the decisions any any ones you let through that you think were mistakes or any ones you didn't let through that you wish you had?
1: There is one inquiry I was on that looked at the market selling extended warranties, the kind of insurance policies that you are sold when you buy an expensive item like a refrigerator or a car. And um, what we, we thought that there, this was not a competitive market and we proposed a remedy that involved things like the companies displaying the price of the warranties at the same place as the price of the item because mm-hmm. what they had done before was just tell people as they were paying, right. well, and would you like this policy for just an extra £50? And, and actually they were not very good value. So we proposed remedies like that which were eventually slowly implemented with hindsight i think we should have banned them from being sold at the same time as the item that they were insuring and the people should have been given more space to reflect on whether or not they wanted to buy them
0: do you ever buy them no i don't either no (laughs) not a good use of your money i don't think so but we could be wrong (laughs) (laughs) my guest today has been diane coyle author of the soulful science, what, econo- what economists really do and why it matters. Diane, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. It's been great talking to you.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette.